Let's pray together. Our Father, with great joy, we come to the study of your word, and we pray to receive from it all that you would have for us in order that we would show your glory in this world more faithfully. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I had what I thought was just about the perfect plan to conclude the gospel of, of John just as we were heading into the, to the uh, summer season to come back and to begin in the book of Leviticus, which is about as different than John as you could imagine, but uh, I promise you we'll be, uh, we'll be full of surprises that will really help us as we think about biblical theology, as we'll be seeing themes from Leviticus all throughout the New Testament. But then I got the memo that uh, there's going to be a common class for uh, June, and so this is it uh, until the uh, end of the summer. So that presented me with a crisis of, of a question as to what to do. And so as I've thought about it, it seemed to me that what we're going to do this morning, if, uh, if we can follow together, because it's some of the most familiar territory in Scripture, since we have covered some of this material back at Easter, so you just go backtrack to Easter, we're going to work through the final two chapters of John together. And uh, Lord willing, we will do that this morning and in a way that will greatly profit us as we look to God's Word. The burial of Jesus was where we left off last week. We don't know that it was at this particular place or that. If you go to Jerusalem and they take you to the garden tomb, it is undoubtedly a garden tomb. Whether it's the garden tomb that's not important. It is very important that if you're there, you realize you are in proximity to wherever Jesus had been buried because the space is not very large. And you, and you realize just how, looking at a tomb, the finality would have been demonstrated by that great stone that would have been rolled over the window, rolled over the door. Window in a tomb. It's not a good way to start on a Sunday morning. If you go to Cave Hill, by the way, you can find some uh, tombs with, with windows, which, again, it'll, it'll blow your mind, but that's a different category. In this case, it's the stone that was rolled over the opening to the tomb, and the finality of it was that the stone was to prevent uh, robbers from entering the tomb to be large enough that uh, it, it would have precluded someone disturbing the body, and also just to seal off the tomb. The point is finality, not the expectation on the part of those who built the tomb that the inhabitant would be resurrected from the dead in three days. John chapter 20, you know, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the tomb had been, the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. This is not something that was unknown at the time. Grave robbery was one of the biggest problems, uh, one of the most common crimes at the time. And it is because there had been the habit of burying people, not only with the precious embalming substances, but also with, with other items that could represent wealth. And you know, even people today are sometimes buried in just that way, with jewelry or anything else on and so it was, uh, it was necessary to check on the tombs. It's also an act of respect. We still do that 
even in these days. When we bury a loved one, we will often, just in a matter of hours or, or days, return to the grave. It's important for us emotionally, just as we come to terms with the finality. But in this case, you had Mary Magdalene coming to the tomb early, and the stone has been rolled away. It's the one thing that should not have happened according to the, the conventional way you would take care of a tomb. The, tomb should, the stone should not have been moved. Now, you'll notice the language here in verse 2. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And the other disciple is John, who does not name himself out of what we presume to be authorial humility. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And he sometimes is just the other disciple. This turns out to be a rather crucial passage for a reason that might sneak up on you. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. After stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. In just those few verses, there is so much for us to consider. For one thing, you have Mary Magdalene, who's the very first to come to the knowledge, according to John's sequence, that the tomb is empty. She's puzzled by the fact that the tomb is empty. She goes to Simon Peter and John, the other disciple, and it is a crisis that leads them to run to the tomb. But then there's a fascinating little detail that you might have missed. As you look at the passage, we are told that the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And then we're told later in verse 8, then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. Why that detail? I believe it was R.T. France, the uh, evangelical New Testament scholar, who said that he had been tempted by liberalism, by a liberal understanding of Scripture when he was at university being taught by liberal professors. And he said that one of the things he had been told is that the Gospels were invented uh, chronology. They were, they were invented narrative in order to add historical justification to the Jesus movement. And, and, and yet, as, as he looked at other literature from the era, he noted a clear distinction, for example, in the four Gospels. And he, he pointed to Luke as, as you know, being specifically chronological. He, he pointed to John as being narrative with this kind of detail. And, and his point was this. He said, if you were inventing this dialogue or inventing this narrative, depending upon the passage, you would not include details such as which of the two disciples got there first. And you would not repeat that detail. This New Testament scholar said, I, I came to believe in the authority of Scripture precisely because this is not written as just other literature would be written. This bears all the marks of eyewitness testimony. The details turn out to be important. You watch a show, maybe a Law and Order or 
Perry Mason or whatever detective show you may want to see. And it, the, the case almost always turns on a detail that catches the attention. And, and here you have this detail right here. There's something else we see in this passage. We are told in verse 9, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Even more so, even more so, this demonstrates the inspired Holy Spirit authorship of this text and the very fact that it is not consistent with how a text would have been invented in order to buttress the claims of the early church. It is because even here, even here after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, John is honest enough to tell us that as yet the disciples had not understood that Jesus must rise from the dead. This is not literature written in order to show how insightful the disciples are. But rather the fact that even they had not understood yet that, that he was to rise from the dead. We see a parallel passage in Luke chapter 24 with the two men on the road to Emmaus. And of course, then a man comes alongside them. We find out later that it's Jesus. And, and they start talking about the things that happened in Jerusalem. And the, and the things that happened in Jerusalem came down to the fact that they killed Jesus and, and, and he was buried. And, and, then, and then came the speculation about the empty tomb. And then Jesus confronts them. These are disciples. They're unnamed. But Jesus, Jesus confronted them and said, did you not know that it was necessary for the Son of Man to rise from the dead? Later, when Jesus was no longer with them that evening, they reflected to each other, did not our hearts burn within us as he taught us in the Scripture? Because Jesus had walked through Old Testament Scriptures in order to reveal to them the, the fact that the resurrection was a part of God's plan from the beginning, even as given indication in the Old Testament. It's just very helpful for us to understand that the disciples at this point did not yet understand, but of course their understanding is unfolding even now. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Very interesting in the details also of the, of the burial cloths. The burial cloths. You'll notice that the piece that had been over the face of Jesus has been folded up in a place by itself. What does that tell us? Well, it tells us that this is to indicate that the body was not stolen. Because if you steal a body, you don't stay to fold the linens carefully. This demonstrates that this was something very different than a grave robbery, and the evidence was already there to give that indication. But now you see that as Mary is weeping outside the tomb, she sees two angels in white. Woman, it's not an insult. Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. One of the things we see throughout the Gospels, John makes it abundantly clear, is that the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus in his, in his body, resurrection body, was not immediately recognized the way that the pre-resurrection body of Jesus had been. 
Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. It is, of course, impossible to put us, ourselves into any biblical situation as if by imagination we can just place ourselves there, feel what would have been felt, see what would have been seen, the full impression of what we would have experienced, but Scripture brings us right to the threshold of that. Scripture takes us right to the threshold of understanding Mary and the disciples, the empty tomb, the word that came from Mary to Simon Peter and the other disciple the disciples racing there, what they find, even with burial claws, the face piece folded, even what they find now with Mary Magdalene seeing two angels, and then even what they find with this man speaking to Mary, she then recognizes as Christ. It's Christ who tells her to go and summon the disciples, and that time is short. His references to the ascension twice it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a sign to them that the time is short. The urgency is tremendously heightened by that comment. In verses 19 and following, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so this is, this is Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them. So this is Jesus who can appear in a room. Now, here's something just fascinating for us to think about. In the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, very God and very man, taking on body, full corporality. He was, he was human in every way we are. His body had the limitations that our body had. Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He, he experienced physical growth from a baby until a, a, a grown man. And yet his body, as, as like ours as it was, is unlike our body after the resurrection. There is some corporeal reality to it. It clearly is a body. And biblical theology tells us that after the resurrection, we will have bodies. But this body is different at the same time. This body is different in that it is not limited in its materiality to even a room. It can appear in a room. So as Jesus was in his corporeal existence in the flesh, he now is not. But as the disciples are, they will one day be as he is, which means we will one day be as he is. We don't understand a great deal about the resurrection body other than the fact that it will not decay, it will not get sick, it's not susceptible to, uh, to, to viruses uh, it is an eternal body, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, even as right now we have a temporal body. Jesus appears in this upper room that had been locked for fear of the Jews and says to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. In other words, they, they, they fully recognize who he is now. Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me even so, I am sending you. And so, there's a form of the commission here. 
of, of the sending out, a form as we will find in Matthew chapter 28, a form of the same commission that we will find in the opening verses to the book of Acts. I'm sending you. You notice how quickly it comes. Upper room, Jesus appears, shows his hands in his side. There's the recognition of who he is as the risen Christ, and the sending comes immediately. Something else we need to note. In verse 22, Jesus breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So here's something for us to recognize. In the chronology of New Testament history, we often speak of the gift of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. True or false? True. But on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the church. Right here in this upper room, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples. Important for us to recognize, so that even as, as, even as we are working our way, we just open the book of Acts. We're walking verses and verses through the book of Acts. The disciples are already acting as those who have received the Holy Spirit. This was promised by Jesus, as we know here in the Gospel of John, so powerfully. If you forgive the sins of anyone, verse 23, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. That's one of those problems in translation. Let's just, just face it and deal with it very quickly. It's the same problem we find in Matthew chapter 16. Translating perfect tense verbs is very difficult. It's very difficult for children. That's the hardest thing for children to understand when parents talk to children. It, it just in developing knowledge of the English language are present tense verbs. In this present perfect, it's the perfect that makes it far more difficult. It's this, and, and then if you add, if you deal in the perfect tense and you make anything past, like will have been done, that is the most difficult verbal construction for most children to understand. Something retroactively would have been done. When Jesus gives the disciples, gives the church the power of the keys in Matthew chapter 16, he describes the exercise of the keys, which we know primarily is the exercise of church discipline, but of the spiritual authority of the church. Whatever you bound on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But it should be that perfect tense that we understand it. As you look to the Greek, it's whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Heaven is not waiting on us. <laughs> That's not what's going on. Heaven's not waiting, the, the, the righteousness of God, the righteous judgment of God is not waiting upon our decision and God will execute it. Rather, it is the parallel that the church rightly acting on the basis of the authority of Scripture in the power of the Spirit is doing what heaven, God's own judgment, has already made done. The same thing here. But it does point to the fact that Jesus is now speaking to the disciples in ways that are churchly. So if you're following the Gospel of John, this is where things are very churchly. In the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16, the church has been declared. Here, you see the same reality of the church taking shape. Verse 24, now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight years later, eight days later, 
The disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your, out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now again, because we are... Uh, we're on a different timetable than we had planned, looking at these two chapters of John. We will not linger here long, but there's something very interesting about Thomas's, let's put it this way, what, what fault falls upon Thomas? What judgment falls upon Thomas in this passage? The, the judgment appears to be this. Thomas dared to set the rules of his faith in advance. It wasn't just a general need for evidence. That's something I think we as Christians can understand. It was instead that Thomas set in advance the intellectual rules of his belief. Now, you'll notice Jesus met those intellectual rules. In other words, he demanded proof. He said before he had the opportunity, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That is the pattern of Thomas that we are not to emulate. Jesus makes that clear when he says, blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Even in evangelism, this is something we face, or in apologetics, where, where someone says, well, here are the rules, here, here's my rule of belief. I will not believe until X, Y, Z. Well, number one, I've known many people who've come to Christ when they have said, here are my intellectual rules, but they've come to Christ despite those intellectual rules. Not not because all the evidence and the truth wasn't there, but simply because they had focused on something arbitrary only to have a saving encounter with Christ. This is not some kind of leap of faith over against the evidence. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is the evidence. He is simply saying, you better be careful in setting those prior conditions of belief that you're going to demand because you are not even in control of your thinking as much as you want to declare yourself to be the Lord of your mind and of your heart. But Jesus here does speak of the church, which will not have the opportunity that Thomas has had. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. In verse 20, we are told, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, this too is so very important in biblical theology. The Gospels are not given in order to convince lost people of claims concerning Jesus and they stay lost. This is, this is not merely persuasive literature. It's not meant to be. The Gospels are Holy Spirit-inspired apostolic documents. 
that are intended to bring persons to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here you see, in what some scholars have said, was the proper ending to the Gospel of John. In other words, this is where, this is where some people say they believe that the Gospel of John had effectively ended. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the One who will reign forever on David's throne, the Son of God, which goes back to the combination of those two, of the fact that Jesus is Messiah and divine, the Son of God, that reaches a climactic point after Jesus had declared himself to be the bread of life in John chapter 6. When in asking the disciples, do you also want to go away, Peter answers, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And beyond this, we've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now you have Christ's identity as Messiah and Son of God affirmed clearly here in John chapter 20 as the gospel is coming to its conclusion. But it is not over. At the end of chapter 20, we're told that Jesus did many other signs as miracles. So there were other post-resurrection miracles that were a part of the disciples' experience, no doubt a part of the confirmation to them that this was Jesus. These signs are pointing to who he is, which gets the link between verse 30 and verse 31. The, the signs actually did exactly what the signs were, would, would do. They confirmed that he is both Messiah and the Son of God. In verse 21, we're told that Jesus appeared to seven disciples. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Now, if we're honest, following the history of the, the disciples and, and, and the, the people who have been around Jesus, through the events of Christ's arrest, trial, crucifixion, resurrection, and then the post-resurrection, we do not have as much detail as we had for some other events, such as Holy Week itself. Uh, the, the, I mean, look how much of the Gospel of John was taken just with the farewell discourse and, and then with the events of what took place in Jerusalem. And, and that's because we, de we desperately need to know all those things in detail. Concerning the post-resurrection experience, which after all was short, and Jesus pointed out even to, to, uh, to Mary Magdalene that it was short when he, she was told to go to the disciples and speak about the fact that Christ was preparing to ascend to his Father. So this, this is intended to be a very short period of time. But if it's unclear to us, maybe it ought to be helpful and encouraging to us to recognize it appears to be unclear to the disciples as well. So what do we do now? Returning to fishing would not appear to be the most natural answer to that question. But what else do they do? At this point, they're back at the sea, which is at the lake. They're fishing. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. 
This is, this is Peter. The rock. This is Peter. Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. This is Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is Peter, who with John was at the empty tomb. This is Peter. We're told just in the time here that it was shortly after the post-resurrection appearances. This is Peter. I'm going fishing. That is meant to surprise you. That is, uh, that, uh, to just catch you asking the question, why would he now go fishing? Again, the detail that's given to us. If in a little incident like this, we have the details, it doesn't just tell us that Jesus came upon the disciples fishing. We actually are given, in this very short chapter, we are given insight into the internal thinking of the disciples, which is to tell us they didn't know yet what to do. They, they don't. They didn't know yet what the Lord's intention was for them. So Peter effectively went back to what he was doing when Jesus called him. It, it's a far more significant turn here than you just might think. He goes back to doing what he was doing when Jesus called him. As you know, it doesn't last. They also caught nothing. An interesting commentary on the fact that you can go back to what you were doing when Jesus called you, but... You can go back to the fish. The fish may not come back to you. We're also told, remember, that Jesus has done many signs. Again, the signs, John's word for miracle, demonstrating conclusively that they were to show his messianic identity. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. Children, it is John, the disciple, who so often refers to the disciples of Jesus as children. When he writes his apostolic letters, he will refer to the church as little children. Is that condescending? No, it is not condescending. It is a reference to the fact that we are like little children what do little children need? Well, they need everything. You know, watching our daughter Katie and son-in-law Riley with those three little preschool children, my heavens, they need everything. Now. But there's something else children need, and that's instruction. Constant, constant, constant instruction. Otherwise, not only is it true that they will never be civilized, it is true that they will never survive. Children need care. Children, children need instruction. Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, this is John, remember, that disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to him, said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment 
for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. How many of you remember Peter jumping into the lake? It's just another one of those details that surprises us. It's John who recognizes that this one who called out to them as Jesus. It is the Lord. So you see, you see the reference to him. How the disciples referred to him. It is the Lord. And Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. That meant he had basically taking himself down to his undergarment because of the, the stress and labor of the work. But because Jesus is there, he puts on his outer garment. It's a sign of respect. And threw himself into the sea. It's not exactly clear what that means. Was this an act of humility? Or, or was it, as is probably more likely in the context of the passage, that he went in to help gather the fish. Because it Im immediately what we were told is that the, uh, the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish. So this was, this was hard work. Jesus had, had told them to cast the net on the other side. The, the model of uh, net fishing was clear in the Gospels already. Jesus told the parable of the net in Matthew chapter 13 as a parable of the kingdom. Saying that the, the, uh, the, the net gathered fish, and some of them were good and some of them were bad. The good fish were put, Jesus says, in containers. The bad fish were thrown away, and then it says, to a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So clearly the fish are representing human beings. This net fishing has gone from nothing to one that threatens the boat, which may be the other sign of why Peter and other disciples, we find out, were in the water uh, because they were, they were struggling with this catch. It was so large. In verse 8, the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the, the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Again, a detail, a detail. How many fish? Over 100. How many fish? About 150. No, how many fish? 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Again, another sign of the Lord's favor. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. We can sense the already and the not yet here. This is true for the larger testamental context of the entire New Testament. The kingdom is here in Christ. The kingdom was present in Christ when he declared his earthly ministry in a passage like Mark chapter 4. But the kingdom is also not yet 
the kingdom, in a sense, is now here more. The, 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 the New Testament eschatology would say, uh, as it merges with ecclesiology, that here, even as you have Jesus after the resurrection and you have the church, the church is now the presence of the kingdom in this world, a protected, providential presence in this world, a transforming, evangelistic presence in this world. But there's, there's also a not yet but even in the experience of the church, in the age of the church, there's a not yet. Because again, we are not yet to Acts chapter 2. We are not yet to the upper room. The disciples clearly do not know what Jesus expects of them right now. But remember that when they were summoned, Mary Magdalene was told to tell them that he is about to ascend to his father. In verse 14 of chapter 21, John just tells us this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. The third time. You'll notice a pattern here. In verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, John said to Simon Peter, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. They ate breakfast together. And after the meal, Jesus addresses Simon Peter. He goes back to his first name, Simon. You recall in Matthew chapter 16 that Peter is given the second name Peter, rock, Petros, because it was he who had the human lips first honored to express, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the confession of Peter that is the rock. But Peter's given the name. One of the lessons we learned from Peter, however, is that the rock can't keep himself very rock-like, which actually ought to be an encouragement to us about Christ making us faithful, being faithful through us to his glory in a way we can never be faithful in ourselves. But it must have been quite shocking and jarring to Peter that Jesus in this post-resurrection appearance and in this conversation would refer to him once again as Simon, son of John. This is exactly again what you see in Matthew chapter 16, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John. The question do you love me more than these? Who are the these? Not these fish. Do you love me more than these, meaning his brothers? And remember, the, and spiritual brothers, remember it's with his spiritual brothers that he went back fishing. He was, he's still leader, so to speak. He has a band of brothers. Do you love me, Jesus said, more than these? may appear to be an odd question, but it comes down to spiritual priority. And, and Peter's response is, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. So 
feed my lambs, tend my sheep. Then he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. What's Peter doing? He's been fishing. When Peter doesn't know what to do in this time after the resurrection, when there's not yet a commissioning and he doesn't exactly know what the Lord wants him to do, he goes back to what he had done when Jesus had found him. He's fishing. What is Peter not? A shepherd. It's, an, it's a different calling. Now, Jesus will use the fishing as, as, as a way of speaking of fishing as a metaphor for evangelism and, and the net itself in the fishing. Jesus is just given with very clear implications about the mission of the church. But, but this isn't about fish. He's speaking to Peter about lambs. So what's the difference between a fisherman and a shepherd? Careful. Careful. It's obvious, but yet not. What does the shepherd have with sheep that the fish, ermine, doesn't have with fish? Yes, a relationship. There's a, trust me, there ought to be no relationship between a fisherman and a fish. If there's a relationship, something's gone wrong in this picture. But it is exactly the opposite between the shepherd and the sheep. This is found throughout the shepherd metaphor in all of Scripture. Just think of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's also found in words of judgment in the Old Testament as the Lord will speak through the prophets, my shepherd have abandoned the sheep. They have robbed the sheep. They have abused the sheep. Just think of how many of the parables of Jesus concern sheep. How much of the content of the New Testament concerns sheep. Just think about Luke chapter 15 and the three parables of lostness and foundness and rejoicing. And it begins with a shepherd who had 100 sheep and has lost one of them and goes after the one that was lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders rejoicing, saying that the lamb that I had lost has been found. Jesus, in the Gospel of John, in one of the I am statements that discloses his divine identity, said, I am the good shepherd. He also reveals himself as the door of the sheep. Peter has never been referred to as a shepherd. Peter probably never thought of himself as a shepherd. But Peter is going to be the primary leader of the Christian church at this point. And the assignment that is given to him is feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Now, you notice they're not his sheep. He didn't say, Peter, you're a shepherd now and you've got a lot of sheep. He says, I have sheep. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. 
This pastoral calling to Peter is made very clear in the role that he will play. Even as he and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the other disciple, as they will be before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4. Even as they will have to decide issues in the early church. Most importantly, as Peter becomes the preacher. This is the astounding transformation of of this Judean, actually Galilean fisherman, into a preacher. And folks, we get to see it all the time. This is one of the glories of the calling of being at a place like Southern Seminary. We get to see this all the time. We, We get to see men turned into preachers who weren't. Turned into shepherds, which they weren't. But now they are. Peter changed from a a fisherman to a shepherd in an instant here in the final chapter of the Gospel of John. He is transformed from, just imagine the transformation. He had been Simon, the son of John, and a fisherman. Now he is Peter, the rock, and a shepherd. Jesus has more to say to Peter. In verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after following this, he said to him, follow me. Folks, this is just so sweet. Jesus tells Peter, basically, he's going to be handed over to others. Whether Peter understood this in full or not, we don't know, but certainly in retrospect, the church understood it. But notice what's powerful is that Jesus follows this with another call, follow me. And we know Peter did. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Here's John again. The one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Going back again to the supper. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? But remember, Peter had asked the question in verse 21, Lord, what about this man? In other words, what's your plan for him? Jesus' answer is, that's my sovereign plan. That's up to me. If it is my will that he remain until I come, it's not your business. You follow me. It's an example to us. Every single one of us has a unique discipleship. Every single one of us has a unique task of obedience to Christ as we follow him. If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? We believe that John lived so much into old age that in exile on the island of Patmos, he wrote what we know as the book of Revelation. John had a long apostolic ministry. We believe the ministry of Peter was far shorter, and there is evidence that indeed He was executed in Rome by tradition, crucified upside down. That is tradition. That is not a New Testament teaching. It is a tradition. This disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, John says, I'm he. This is the disciple who even now is bearing witness about these things and who has written about these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Jesus here has said that John will continue. It's been mostly in this chapter about Peter, but now it is about John, and John refers to himself as this disciple. 
The very disciple who was reclining against Jesus in the supper, the very disciple who would ask him, who is it who is to betray you? The, the one who's described as the disciple whom Jesus loved, it, it's this disciple who's bearing witness about these things and who has written about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's saying, I witness, I'm telling you, these things are true, I know it. This is my own life, this is my own experience, these were my own eyes. I know that these things are true. The Gospel of John ends with this astounding statement in verse 25. Now, there were also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Two things we need to understand from that. Number one, what we have in the four Gospels, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and of course, what we have in the Gospel of John is the life and ministry of Jesus, the words and deeds of Jesus presented to us as Gospels. This is the good news. This is a summary. Every single one of them a summary. Every single one of them a Holy Spirit, inerrant, infallible summary. Every one of them a living and active, sharper than ever than any two-edged sword. Summary. They are a summary. John says, you know, if I just think about it, all the things Jesus said and did, if someone were to have recorded them, it would fill all the books in the world. We don't need all of that. We might be interested in all of that for sure, but we are not given all of that. What we are given is what is good for us. We are fed by the good shepherd what we need. This is what we need. This is Jesus feeding us. I expected to have two more weeks in the Gospel of John, but I recognize that uh, due to church scheduling, that's not going to happen. It has been one of the great honors of my life to share the Gospel of John with you. And we will never exhaust Scripture, no matter how many times we turn to a passage we think we know. Even in just these last two chapters, even in just the relationship between Jesus and these two disciples, Peter and John, even in the relationship between Peter and John, look at how much we've learned. Just think of the transformation of Peter from Simon the fisherman to Peter the shepherd. Think of John, the one who wrote these things and knows these things to be true, who knows there will be much more for him to say as the Holy Spirit speaks through him in the future. But know this, if everything Jesus said and did were written down, it would fill all the books of the world. We don't have those books. We have this one. We have these Gospels. We have the New Testament. And it's all we need. It's a great privilege to walk through Scripture with you. I am looking forward to beginning Leviticus when we come back in the, in the late summer. And uh, I promise you there will be treasures old and new in Leviticus. Reading Leviticus, we'll understand how better to read the New Testament. And knowing the New Testament, we're going to have a tremendous advantage over those of old in understanding Leviticus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for all you've given us in our study of this gospel. We have not exhausted it. It has not exhausted us. There is more for every single one of us to learn from the gospel of John and from every word of Scripture so long as we shall live. And until then, Father, may we be ever more capable, ever more faithful students of your word. May we be conformed to the image of Christ. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.